0: swordplay. Alex, a 13th century Renaissance work of art depicting the mocking of Christ was discovered in a French woman's kitchen and sold at auction for $27 million. <laughs> wow. Do you have any Renaissance
1: art just hanging around your house? No, but uh, I do have some refrigerator art I'd be willing to part with for a nominal fee. Oh, Dude. You sell your kids' refrigerator art? Well, in all fairness, some of it's mine. And let's face it, Nick, mission support is not going to raise itself. Okay.
0: (laughs) This is Swordplay. We are your hosts.
1: I'm Nick Perez, preaching minister for the Davis Park Church of Christ in Modesto, California. I'm Alex Flood, an evangelist for the Lake Phelan Church of Christ in St. Paul, Minnesota. On this episode of Swordplay, Habakkuk chapter 2. That's right. And let that be a reminder to the audience. Go back and listen to our notes on Habakkuk chapter 1 and read the book of Habakkuk. Come back and we will dig into the text. And so we see right off the bat, verse 1.
0: That's right. That's, um, we have a statement here that I will take my stand, Habakkuk talking, I will take my stand at my watch post, station myself on the tower, and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. So Alex... What does Habakkuk expect to see as he watches
1: and waits for Yahweh's response? Well, I think the short answer is he expects to receive a vision. And so he keeps watch to see. These are visual languages. He wants to see what the Lord will say. So that's visual and auditory. This is just a similar answer to last week's answer from chapter one, where I noted that true prophets are allowed to see the throne room of Yahweh. When they see a word from the Lord, they see the living word. And their prophetic experience was not just that of hearing what Yahweh says, but also seeing someone who is saying it to him. Any thoughts, Nick?
0: Yeah, no, that's that's right on a vision, uh, an oracle. It's uh, verse 1 of chapter 1, as we talked about, a burden, a word from God. He has complained, and now he is awaiting his answer. That's right. Um, let's talk just for a moment about the structure of chapter 2 before we get too far. Alex, uh, What what's the
1: structure of chapter 2 look like? Yeah, chapter 2, verse 1 is really the end of Habakkuk's thought from chapter 1, verse 17. So this is what I call a bad chapter break. Hmm. It should really start on verse 2. Chapter 2, verse 2 through the rest of the chapter, that's God speaking. And uh, from my perspective, the first few verses, verses 2 through Uh, the first half of 5, we'll call it 5a. I think that's the preface, that's the warning about the enemy who is coming, and uh, 5b, I'll say, through the rest of the chapters about the actual enemy, his coming, and his eventual downfall. What are your thoughts, Nick? Well, you know, you
0: you make a good point about verse 1, probably should belong in chapter 1. You know, if you don't have a Bible, uh, the, without the chapter and verse markers, uh, oh, constant listener, you need to get one, all right? right. Uh, the NIV has, it's called the Books of the Bible, uh, the ESV. I just purchased one earlier this week. Uh, they have a reader's Bible. Uh, the chapter and verse divisions, those are deleted, and it's supposed to help with reading uh, without the obtrusive interruption into an author's thought with these bad chapter breaks, Alex, as you talked about. Right. Um, I believe there's a function in Logos that will allow you to do that. I just don't know what it is because I'm not Morris Proctor or whatever that guy's <laughs> name is who does the workshops. But I'm not uh, sure I think what it's in there.
1: Is either, yeah.
0: Uh, so let's talk verse two. Uh, Yahweh says, "Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it." Uh, Alex, um,
1: what would have been this tablet that Habakkuk wrote on? Yeah, that's a good question because the most common biblical use of the term tablets refers back to the two stone tablets of the Mosaic Covenant. And just like those original tablets, we are missing Habakkuk's tablets as well. We have no original, what we call autographs, for any book of the Bible. We just have really good copies of the books of the Bible. What makes them good are how early they are, the distance between the original and the copy, how complete they are. Uh, when we compare one to another, and if we have multiple copies that we can compare with one another. So all of our copies of the Bible, they're early, they're complete, they're multiple for comparison. We have multiple languages to compare them in. We have good copies, but no originals. So tablets. All right, well, God gives a similar command to Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 30, verse 8, where you see the recording of judgment against Israel, put on tablets to serve uh, the purpose of a future witness. And again, that's a throwback to the Mosaic tablets, which were said to serve as a witness of the covenant. And that's why it was kept in the uh, Ark of the Covenant. The Ark was just the box that they kept it in with the lid and in the Holy of Holies. The theological message, I think, behind Habakkuk's writing on tablets may have been to just recall that whole mosaic covenant, that the agreement Yahweh had with Israel was now broken. And that would require new stone tablets, tablets of judgment now. And that judgment would be according to the agreement of cursings within the first stone tablets. So there is this imagery that does sort of come to the surface of one's mind if you're familiar with the the Old Testament story when Lo and behold, destruction's coming, and he says, "Write it on tablets." What do you think, Nick?
0: No, I I agree with uh, your assessment. Um, could have been stone tablets. They also made clay tablets back in the day as well. But um, no, that's yeah, right. I think that's all. That's all good stuff. So, uh, let's talk a moment about um, this running business. But then also, verse three talks about how the vision awaits its appointed time. you got to wait for this thing. So what does it mean to wait when God said to run, Alex?
1: Yeah, so in verse 2, it says, uh, the one who reads it may run. So that's the purpose of reading the vision. But then in verse 3, it says, ah, wait for it, it's coming, it won't fail, even if you think it's taking a long time, it's coming. So the meaning, and from my perspective, you may have a different one, is that for the faithful believer... We're going to get into that in the next verse. The righteous will live by faith. For the faithful believer to hear and accept God's judgment, that that person should probably run away from Jerusalem while they still have time to do so. Uh, And then from a distance, they'll wait as Jerusalem's destruction unfolds. Because Babylon's coming. It is going to happen. So don't get impatient and think, oh, you know, it's been a few years since we left. Maybe that Habakkuk guy was crazy. Like, let's, let's just go back. Like, Babylon's not coming. The temple's there. Destruction maybe isn't coming after all. I think the purpose of the vision is to say, no, you wait for it. It's coming, and stay away. What are your thoughts, Nick? Yeah, it may be. <clears throat> uh, so just a little
0: different perspective. Uh, it could be that the the runner has to run in order to spread the news to others. In fact, uh, the NIV makes the interpretive move to call the runner a herald. Uh, The end is yet future for when Habakkuk receives this vision. So the vision awaits its appointed time. There is a specific uh, time that Yahweh has for the destruction that is coming for Babylon. So Habakkuk writes the vision on tablets. It's read, and then... The reader speeds it along, as it were, to anyone who would listen. Babylon's toast. P.S. It will surely come, no doubt about it. Though it seems it's been delayed, just wait. It's coming. So a little different take, but uh, I think either one is is, uh,
1: appropriate. And the distinction there being um, the coming judgment, from my view, is the destruction of Jerusalem and later Babylon and you're honing in and saying, this is maybe just Babylon here and Babylon's destruction. Am I making the right distinction between what you are saying versus what I'm saying? Yep, that's good stuff. All right. Well, what do we have then?
0: Verse 4, his soul is puffed up, uh, reads my English standard. Uh, I believe the NASB talks about the proud one. Um, so who is this proud
1: one, this one who is puffed up, Alex? yeah well, this goes um in the same breath as you know the the famous the righteous will live by faith uh quote and so behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by faith um so from my perspective, I think the proud one is referring to the Israelite who refuses to take heed to the vision and run away from the coming destruction um in the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, the proud one is not mentioned in verse four, but it's replaced with the one who draws back. And so the one who draws back, well, who's drawing back and where are they drawing back to? We'll get into that a little bit more in the next verse, um, but that's quoted by you know the Hebrew writer. And so there's information there to be drawn from. What are your thoughts on the proud one, Nick? And again, just uh
0: track it with my train of thought from the previous answer, uh, this is the Babylonians, the Babylonians whom Yahweh will punish. And they've already been pictured as proud, as arrogant earlier in the book. 1 verse 10 talks about how they scoff at kings, they laugh at rulers, all um, very – the kind of language that denotes pride and arrogance and stuff like that. Sure. So. Um, they're also described as arrogant due to their wealth uh, later on in 2 verse 5, which we'll, we'll right. dig into and talk about. Right. Uh, uh, in fact, the the Dead Sea Scrolls of uh, the, the commentary on Habakkuk talks of the, the translation um, fits the context for greed and all that. And they, they have that in there as well. But um, uh, yeah, my take is Babylonians here. All right. So the rest of verse 4. Yes, And as you talked about, that very well-known verse, the end of this verse, the righteous shall live by his faith is what my English standard says. Um, So what did Yahweh mean
1: here for the righteous to live by faith, Alex? Well, my thinking for at least a Habakkuk's context, what it would have immediately meant to the audience is uh, tracking on my view is that it meant the faithful would run away from the coming destruction of Jerusalem. You wouldn't stick around thinking that everything's going to be okay, Yahweh's going to save you. Uh, Jews in Habakkuk's day may have been thinking, have faith, Yahweh will save us from Babylon. This is just a correction. It's just another slap on the wrist. But I think Yahweh is telling them that he is sending Babylon, and if you really have faith, you'll run away. But a counter-thought they would say, how would we live without the temple of Yahweh? How are we going to uh, have faith in Yahweh without his presence? And the answer probably would have been something akin to a New Testament answer. You live the same way Abraham lived without a temple, and that is by faith. Uh, remember, this is going to be the main problem for believing Israelites even after destruction. So both North Israel's destruction by Syria and the southern kingdom's destruction by Babylon impending here right in Habakkuk's day. The problem is going to be how do you stay faithful during dispersion? How? It would have been hard to uh, leave Jerusalem, I think, while the temple was still standing. Uh, I mean, why would you leave if you still have the presence of Yahweh? That, that's what the temple meant. But Yahweh himself says through Habakkuk, leave now before it's too late. And it is pretty interesting that the Jews would have been faced with the exact same scenario in the first century with the Romans in 67 to 70 AD. And in that scenario, when Jerusalem became uh, besieged by Rome and was finally destroyed in AD 70, the Christians were not in the city of Jerusalem. They had fled, they ran, and they took shelter in the mountains of Pella. Now, the Septuagint, here's what I was referring to in the previous question. The proud one isn't there. It says, he who draws back. So the Septuagint says, he, if he draws back, my life does not find pleasure in it. But the righteous one will live by my faith. Now, the writer of Hebrews, uh, chapter 10, verse 39, took that phrase, the shrinking or drawing back, to mean, I think, shrinking back to destruction. And that would correspond to staying in Jerusalem while the enemy comes to destroy it. And so the Hebrew writer applies that verse to Jewish Christians, saying that they should not shrink back. If the proud one who shrinks back is referring to Babylon, uh, in my mind, I don't know how Babylon shrinking back leads to Babylon's destruction. It makes more sense to me that this was meant for Jews who should not shrink back to Jerusalem's destruction and then gets applied in the book of Hebrews to Jewish Christians in the same way. Uh, by the way, also, this means that the writer of Hebrews is clearly going off of the Septuagint or something closer to the Septuagint than the Masoretic text. So there's a lot of things I mentioned there to think about. Nick, what are your thoughts? I like how uh, uh, you uh, uh,
0: broke that down. Well done. You know, bringing Abraham to the conversation, right? Um There does appear to be some reliance on Genesis 15, 6, how Abraham believed God, it was credited to him as uh, righteousness. And so uh, here is Yahweh exhorting his people, and what is he exhorting them to? There's uh, several different ways you could look at this just based on uh, the text itself. Um, he could be exhorting his people to trust in him, to, ha- to have faith in him, to punish the bad guys, the puffed up ones. Uh, he could be exhorting them to remember his faithfulness, uh, even as they endure captivity, and they will uh, in the future. He could be exhorting them to uh, uh, rely on God's, or to, or to remind them of God's faithfulness in fulfilling his promise of salvation. And... uh it will happen. Uh, God will bring an, an end to the puffed-up ones, but you're going to have to wait. Uh, chapter 3 is going to deal with that uh, as well. Or he could be exhorting them, you know, faith is expressed in living righteously before God uh, and, and keeping the law. And that's that's how the uh, folks at Qumran with the Dead Sea Scrolls and all, that's how they interpreted it. Um. It could be a combination of these things, both faith and obedient observance of the law and the faithfulness of Yahweh through redemptive history. Uh, All that could be in view here. Bottom line is waiting is hard, right? We don't like to wait. And when Habakkuk is written, we're close. We're closer to 100 years from when Babylon will fall. All right? It's still a long ways off uh, from uh, when that will happen. will the Israelite trust God, trust Yahweh, even though the fig trees don't blossom and there's no fruit on the vine. That's what Habakkuk will say later in chapter 3. Well, a righteous Israelite is one who lives recognizing the faithfulness of Yahweh. And that, just as he said, it will surely come. It will not delay. Uh, and so that's my take on um, Habakkuk 2, for the righteous shall live by faith. In the context of their day.
1: Sure, yeah. And so the distinction again being, um you're hitting on the faithfulness of waiting for Yahweh to rescue them from Babylon, avenge them, Babylon to fall, right? Which you're saying is about a hundred years from Habakkuk's day. So if that happens in five thirty six, or is it is that right? Five thirty six, uh you're thinking Habakkuk was written around 636? I forget from the first podcast we talked about when Habakkuk was written. Yeah, I, I argued yeah. for the middle date, which right, would have right. been 640 to 6-something. Six I can't remember now, 612? Sure. I argued for the the late date. And so right. in my view, Jerusalem was, uh, I don't know, less than 20 years out from being destroyed. And, uh, and so that would put... Uh, Babylon about eighty or ninety years out from being destroyed. So uh, yeah, very subtle distinctions being made there, but just a little bit take on how would people have read that in Habakkuk's day? But also how is that read back into the church and even into our day? Because this is a pretty well uh, quoted idea and verse throughout the New Testament. We see it in Romans, we see it in Galatians, we see it in Hebrews. So Nick Talk to us about how you see Habakkuk, uh, verse 4 here in chapter 2, used in the New Testament.
0: Yeah, so let's let's just walk through those texts. <clears throat> we'll start in Romans 1, verse 17. Uh, for in it the righteous... So we start about the gospel. Not ashamed of the gospel, it's the power of God for salvation for everyone. The Jew first, also the Greek. Verse 17, for in it <clears throat> the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And so uh, there's the quote, right? One reading of Romans uh, through the interpretive lens of one seventeen would be that Paul is quoting Habakkuk in order to communicate to the Christians at Rome that life with God has always been by faith. Uh, This is a pretty typical way of reading uh, the book of Romans. This appears to be kind of the thesis statement of Paul in Romans. And so what he does is he, his argument, it goes back to Abraham in chapter 4, and then Christ is presented as the faithful Israelite in chapters 9, 10, and 11. Therefore, 12 verse 1, how are we to live as those who have been declared righteous, justified by his blood, 5 verse 9 says. Well, that's what chapters 12 through 15 are about, righteous living, uh, before God by faith. Uh, so <clears throat> that's one way of reading and uh, understanding the quotation of Habakkuk in Romans. There's another reading uh, that would take by faith to mean kind of what it meant in Habakkuk's day by faithfulness, and that is faithfulness in God's promise. This reading, again, it would echo very strongly the Habakkuk text. Um, In the Hebrew, the righteous shall live by his, that is God's, faithfulness. And so Romans 1, chapters 1 through 11, that records the faithfulness of God, despite humanity's inability to pursue God, chapters 1 through 3. Indeed, even God's wrath being revealed in, uh, in the world, that is God's righteousness as well. Uh, God's faithfulness through Abraham, chapter 4. God's faithfulness from Adam to Christ, chapter 5. And especially the faithfulness of God through Israel despite the rebellion, chapters 9 through 11. And then again, chapter 12, verse 1 begins, Therefore, and in light of God's faithfulness, Christians, those who are slaves of righteousness, chapter 6, Christians ought to live in this manner, which is chapters 12 through 15. Um, Admittedly, this is a more difficult reading. Uh, to to make work, but I think it can. uh there's a couple different ways of viewing how Habakkuk 2 4 is being utilized
1: in uh, Romans chapter one. What do you think, Alex? Yeah, I like your uh, second lens through which you summarize the book of Romans quite well, and uh, and maybe it is the more difficult reading. You know, it's hard to say because. What? how much of Habakkuk's backdrop are we supposed to read into the book of Romans um, I kind of think it reads into quite a bit of the backdrop you know it's interesting to go back and read even just those first few chapters Romans 1 through 2 with the backdrop of Habakkuk in mind I mean Paul he clearly spells out in the first two chapters that uh, destruction comes for both the Jew and the Gentile whoever practices unrighteousness destruction comes for them Just like those who live by faith will be rewarded, first the Jew and also the Gentile, so too punishment will be issued to those who practice the same kinds of evil, first the Jew and also the Gentile. And when you look at Habakkuk, who is going to be destroyed in Habakkuk's writing? First Jerusalem, then Babylon. First the Jew, then the Gentile. And so I... uh, Yeah, I've never seen that before, but even as you were describing more about that second lens of reading everything according to God's faithfulness, where he's faithful to reward the righteous, he's faithful to punish the wicked, I think that is definitely within the backdrop of Paul's writings uh, to the Romans. Now, Paul writes another letter, though, and he mentions the same verse, and he kind of uses it in a different context, Galatians chapter 3, verse 11. Why don't you talk to us about that, Nick? Yeah, uh,
0: so Galatians 3.11 says, Now it is evident that one that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. There it is again, Habakkuk 2. Here, this quotation from Habakkuk is couched in the midst of several quotations from the Hebrew Bible, specifically from the Torah. Um, Deuteronomy 27.26, Leviticus 18.5, Deuteronomy 21.23, Those are all quoted right there around the Habakkuk 2 passage. So Paul's argument here is is tightly wound around the thesis that the blessing of Abraham rests upon the faithful. Uh, He talks about that in 3 verse 9. Uh, Those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Uh, Also, here's the other side of the coin. that uh, that Paul is arguing here. Reliance upon performance to keep the law results in disaster. And that's 3 verse 10. All who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. And then he quotes uh, from Deuteronomy there. And then here comes the Habakkuk quote. In support of the first half of that thesis, the blessing of Abraham for those with faith in Christ. And then it's immediately followed by a quotation from Leviticus 18.5, to support the second half of the thesis, that relying on works of law brings death. That's verse 12 of Galatians 3. The law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Substantial discussion has been had concerning the phrase there in 3 verse 12, the law is not of faith, as though Paul were anti-law, when just verses later he affirms the goodness of the law. Three, verse twenty-one of Galatians, as well as Romans three thirty-one, he uh, talks about the goodness of the law there. But suffice to say, here again, Paul is quoting Habakkuk to talk about the blessing of Abraham for those with faith in Christ. It's uh, it's always been about faith. So,
1: yeah, I think that's a good summary of Galatians three eleven. But it doesn't stop there, Nick. There's another quotation which we alluded to in the last question. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 37 to 38. This, there's a quote here. What do you think about that? Well, it's interesting. Um, 37
0: of Hebrews 10 says, For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. This is the only New Testament quotation of Habakkuk 2, which quotes all of the Septuagint. Um, it's interesting all the other quotes drop the my, um, the mu in in Greek there. Um, but the writer of Hebrews here, he doesn't do that. He quotes the whole thing, including that my there, my faith. Um, it's just uh, the way it's translated here, my righteous one. Um, the other thing that stands out here is the transposition of the verse, and that is the, the writer he quotes the second half first and then the first half second, right? So he kind of flips the the order here. Uh, This quotation also incorporates a pinch of Isaiah 26, verses 20 and 21. Uh, There's uh, some who see a conflated reading there. Now, unlike Romans and Galatians, um, here Habakkuk 2:4 is used as part of an exhortation concerning continued faith in God and perseverance in that faith concerning uh, coming suffering. And that's how it's being used here. Uh, verse 39, kind of interpreting, right. we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith. And preserve their souls, right? Uh, so, and that's what launches into the whole chapter of faith, right? Hebrews eleven. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So that's how it seems that Habakkuk two four is being used there in Hebrews ten, and uh, just kind of a jet tour through how uh, <laughs> the New Testament writers quote
1: the Old Testament, at least as it refers to Habakkuk two. Right, and um, I mean, think about the book of Hebrews, right? What if the book of Hebrews was written, you know, right before the destruction of Jerusalem? It's just like, that would be a very similar context to Habakkuk's writing, which was too written right before the destruction of Jerusalem. Right. So we have in verse five, a transition Mm -hmm. uh, being made. And uh, from my view, I think the first half of verse five is still with the, the rest of the introduction, but the second half of verse five leading into the the coming enemy. But, uh, Nick, you have a different perspective here.
0: Um, yeah, so, uh, verse 5, uh, moreover, okay, here's how my English standard reads it. And I, I think we're going to end up at the same place with the first line of this. But, moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. A haughty man, I think, is what the New American Standard says. So, uh, let's talk for a minute about who this haughty man is that's mentioned here in verse five, Alex.
1: Yeah, so um it really depends on which text you're going off of. Here I'll read the New American Standard. It says, Furthermore, wine betrays the haughty man so that he does not stay at home. And so if if that's the, the Masoretic text reading, going off of that the haughty one would be the coming enemy who, like a drunk madman, just refuses to go home and sleep it off until he's actually consumed all of the nations. Uh, That's an acceptable translation. If you go off the Septuagint, though, there's no mention of wine or the idea of going home. The Septuagint just says the scorner will achieve nothing, and that's it. So the scorner or the haughty man in this verse would probably be... Not the coming enemy, but referring back to uh, my view on verses 2, 3, and 4, that it's the guy whose soul is proud, who shrinks back, who should have run away. So the haughty man is the one who doesn't heed the vision of Habakkuk and refuses to escape while he still has a chance, and he'll be, as a result, swallowed up by the coming enemy. And so I guess for consistency, I vote for the Septuagint here, but I think it can work interpretively with either the Masoretic text or the Septuagint. What do you think, Nick? So the the first line there about the wine, um, I
0: think – so you, you going with the Septuagint. Wine is out of the picture. Right. Um, there's actually – my English standard has a little footnote here that talks about how uh, other uh, texts, manuscripts – Dead Sea Scrolls in particular, have uh, wealth there instead of wine. And I think that fits the context better. Um, you talked about greed in the latter part of this. We're going to talk about the loans or the pledges in verse 6 here. But um, again, from my perspective, as stated earlier, uh, I think this is a collective personification of the Babylonians, that they are this haughty man, this arrogant man, and perhaps it has a special reference to their king, that he represents the nation as a whole, as this haughty man. And so they, or he, are, or is, pictured here as desiring unjust things. In particular, greed and um,
1: so wealth and all that. A quick question. In your footnote in the ESV, then, does it say that it was um, like a like a manuscript variant that they found because in the dead sea scrolls bible that i have um verse four doesn't have uh, wealth or wine mentioned in it and i didn't know if the ESV be new of, of a variant within the manuscripts because you know in the dead sea scrolls this is for our audience nick already knows this in the dead sea scrolls uh there are multiple copies of the same text sometimes and so that's where we might get a variant reading within the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, any thoughts quick there, Nick? It doesn't specify. In fact, it says, here's the whole footnote, Masoretic
0: Text, um, semicolon. So that's, they're referring to the wine yep. there. Dead
1: Sea Scroll, wealth. Interesting, so, interesting.
0: I, I don't know I don't know what they're referring to there. I don't know which yeah, manuscript
1: that's... they're using. I, I'm sure there must be one. There has to be. Uh, I don't think they'd make it up, so... Uh, It's just not in the one I have. (laughs) Verse, the rest
0: of verse five, let's talk about
1: Sheol and death. Alex, um,
0: they're kind of talked about as though they're, well, they're personified, right? They're people. Um,
1: Why are Sheol and death talked about like people? Yeah, so uh, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that there may be more than anthropomorphic language going on here. Uh, so first, I'd like to talk about death. And this is a very short summary. I've written much more about this in uh, other papers, especially my paper on the Four Horsemen of Revelation. But... Publish it. Publish it. <laughs> you can email me and I'll send it to you if you want it. <laughs> so let's talk about death, which here in the Hebrew is the word maveth or mot, And it just so happens that mat, which is translated as the word death here, that's also the proper name of a Canaanite deity that everybody knew about in the ancient Near East. Uh, he was one of the underworld deities, you know, one of the gods of, of Sheol. And in Greek mythology, um, he has a name as well. It's Thanatos. If you translate mot into Greek, it translates as to Thanatos. Thanatos is the name of an underworld deity in Greek mythology. In fact, uh, you remember the, well, you weren't there, but uh, if you remember in the Book of Acts, there's the Temple of Artemis in Ephesus. Well, some of that is still remains today, but most of it's in ruins. But one of the pillars that's in ruins has a carving of Thanatos on it, and he looks like a human with angel wings. It's crazy. (laughs) Hmm. So the angel of death actually looks like a a handsome guy. Um, So that's death, right? So there was the idea that this wasn't just the idea of dying, but this could also refer to an actual deity. Uh, but let's look at Sheol now. Sheol was the Hebrew term for the realm of disembodied spirits. It's located under the earth. And it's equivalent to the Greek idea of Hades. So in Greek mythology, Hades is the name of not just that realm of disembodied spirits, but Hades is also the name of one of the gods. And he's he's one of the premier underworld rulers. There were multiple Rulers of the underworld. Apollo was a ruler of the underworld. Um, Other rulers of the underworld: Thanatos, Hades. Now there is no equivalent to that in the ancient Near East. We don't have a god named Sheol, but it is interesting that when we see the idea of death and Sheol personified, they're always together, like these two guys who show up like a soldier and his (laughs) footmen. So Sheol and Mott or Death. And the uh, they're frequently mentioned together in the Old Testament. And coincidentally, their Greek counterparts, Hades and Thonatos, or death, those are two characters mentioned in Revelation 6 at the calling of the fourth horseman. And so why are Sheol and death talked about like people? I think it's probably because you know, there was the idea that they were actual entities in the heavenly realms, not just the concept of dying and going to the realm of disembodied spirits and i think that would be appropriate for communicating what's going on spiritually behind babylon and behind their wake of destruction and behind the coming enemy who will destroy jerusalem and so i don't know almost like people who uh what's what's the the spanish uh Muerte, what's that cult of the dead or something oh, like D- Oh, yeah. Dia de los Muertos? Dia de los Muertos? Yes, that. It's almost like that. We actually worship an actual entity. I don't know. What do you think, Nick?
0: Well, even in our culture, I mean, we, <clears throat> we personify death. He's usually a hooded figure with a scythe or whatever, right? right? Very menacing. Skull face. <laughs> yeah. And so I think they did the same thing, uh, often personifying death and shield. Here... Uh, They're part of a – well, that's a simile here, right? Um, His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he never has enough. Right. Talking about that haughty man, that arrogant man. And so (laughs) uh, I think it's a a powerful figure. Babylon is like death or Sheol, never has enough. Uh, Greed characterizes this nation. They gobble up greedily all the people of the nations that they conquer. That's interesting. Um, And including – that will include in the near future – um, the, the near future of Habakkuk's day, Judah. Um, and, I mean, that's that's perhaps the worst thing about this whole thing is Babylon, what they're doing is they are dehumanizing the people that they conquer. And they merely collect them. He uh, collects as his own people, all, uh, as his own all peoples. It's what the end of verse 5 says. Right. Just like so many figurines,
1: right just very dehumanizing so <clears throat> uh, well and just to, to point out the distinction there uh, what I'm saying is that uh, when it starts talking about he who is like uh, Sheol and death um, I find that as a new like idea like if I were going to paragraph it, that's where I'd start the next paragraph. And so, but you find it as connected to that same haughty man from verse five. So there's yeah. there's the first distinction, which is fine. And then the second distinction is you take this to be it's definitely it is a simile. He is like death, like Sheol. Um, the second distinction, though, is uh, well, I guess I don't know about you for sure, but I take the the gods of the ancient Near East, uh, they of the Greco-Roman world. These these other divine beings. I take their existence as real and I don't take their story as real. I think who they are is uh, really just fallen angels that masquerade and and fill this uh, role, these characters, in order to control people, to manipulate them, to get worship from them. But uh, the actual existence of real spiritual beings and their interaction with humans through idolatry, I take that to be real. And so that's kind of what leads me to believe that Yeah, Mott is a real character Uh, in Greek, he's thanatos, and that these are, these are people that uh, beings that humans actually interact with through ritual idolatry and other uh, forbidden means of communication. And so that might be another distinction being made here between what I'm saying, and, and perhaps what you're saying. Is that true, Nick?
0: I accept that there are malevolent spiritual beings. Just as there are good spiritual beings, there are bad guys, right? Um, uh, Let's just say the verdict is still out in regards to Sheol and death. Sure, sure. uh, Being specifically – because, for one, Sheol, um, that was a place – the the realm right. of disembodied spirits. Death is right. the state your body enters. It's the separation right. of your spirit from your body, physical and spirit, and all that. So, Right. Um, but
1: anyway, <clears throat> sure, so, still out for me. It, sure, no problem. And I'm sure it is for a lot of people. Uh, it's hard to to wrap our minds around that. You you kind of grow up, or it, at least you know when you start studying the Bible, you kind of just assume that all of these um, other – Gods or deities and myths—they're they're not real; they're they're fake. People's imaginations—they made them up. And so it is—it is a strange way of thinking to turn that around and be like, "Well, what if they were? What if they were real, and what they were saying was just a bunch of lies? And these are actually, you know, the the evil guys in the in the heavenly realms that the Bible talks about." Certainly, another perspective to think about. Well, Nick, uh, you can finish up any thoughts you might have on that. But if anything else, uh, verses six. Press and forward, th-
0: yeah. Press forward,
1: yeah. Okay, verses six and seven does have some interesting language going on here. It talks about Babylon becoming rich from loans. Uh, the question is, uh, is that true? Did they? Who did they borrow from? I mean, who and who would collect? You know, the interest or the repayment from Babylon. <clears throat> What's going on here? <laughs> Which bank yeah. did Babylon go to? <laughs> um, so,
0: so clearly, loans is the the New American Standard has there it it's it's got to be an acceptable translation I mean they wouldn't have put it in the New American Standard if it weren't but um, I'm gonna go with the NIV here uh, which reads that he makes himself wealthy by extortion I like that one writer from the uh, in a commentary New American Commentary put it this way the Babylonians seized the pledges of its victims and either kept the pledges or made the victims pay what they did not owe." So this is this is economic injustice that's being perpetrated by the Babylonians. They'd made themselves rich on the backs of the little guy, and when there is economic injustice in a nation, the proper response is, as we'll see in the next beginning of the next section, whoa! Whoa, it's it's lamentation, and it's a call for justice. God, do something. How long is going to be the question that's asked there buried in verse 6? So, uh, yeah, that's the proper
1: response for economic injustice. What do you think, Alex? Yeah, I think the word uh, loans and creditors, I think those are very poor choices of translation, both linguistically, when you look in the lexicons, and actually contextually as well. I think it just fails all the way around. So I'm going to... NASB New American Standard. That's where I got that from. That's my I use that translation. I still like it, but man, I just think it fails here. Fail NASB fail. Babylon did not take loans. Uh, and actually, it was the opposite. They demanded uh, pledges of loyalty, like a mafia shakedown. Right? Boy, it should be uh, should be a bad thing if something were to happen to your shop here. <laughs> so this. This is better known as extortion. So I think your, your comments are more right on, Nick. Um, Babylon has no creditors, uh, just like uh, you know the conquerors. Uh, it is the conquered slave nations that they leech off of. And these victims, they're going to want revenge. And so in the Septuagint, I like the way it says it. It says uh, they, the victims, they will rise up as they bite him. <laughs> mm. And so and that's the word that gets translated as creditors. It's like, no, it's it's literally those who will rise and bite them. Now, verse 6 it says that the victims will sing a taunt song against Babylon. Uh, but are all of the victims alive to do so? No. Many of them were slaughtered, bloodshed. That's the part of the cursing of all the human bloodshed. I propose that verse uh, 6 and 7 is actually parallel to the taunt song taken up against Babylon in Isaiah 14. We've already seen before that uh, Habakkuk likes to allude and quote from Isaiah, and we'll see that again. So in Isaiah 14, uh, there's a taunt song against Babylon, against the king of Babylon, where he dies. He's brought down to Sheol, and all the kings of the nations who were killed, they arise up in Sheol to greet him and they mock him and they say hey look it's the king of Babylon it seems like you've been brought low like us and now your bed is a bed of worms so that's Isaiah 14 now imagine, <laughs> imagine the king of Babylon arriving in Sheol to the chattering of teeth and uh, and all of his all of his victims are rising up to bite him in the darkness and in the flame and in the worms I mean doesn't that, doesn't that sound terrifying <laughs> I think it sounds terrifying <laughs> <clears throat> so I, I think that's part of what's being, what's being pictured here. Uh, I could be wrong, though. Any thoughts, Nick? I, I think God's a fan of horror with that description. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It's something of a horror movie. <clears throat> well, Nick, uh, verse 8, it talks about those who are left, right? They're going to loot Babylon. Was Babylon ever looted, historically speaking. So I'll just – yeah, uh, yeah I'll, I'll appeal back to verse 3. It will
0: surely come, he says. And so, yeah, Babylon's going to reap what they've sown, it's a uh, uh, stylized language. The deeper we get into this, especially the violence and all that, the uh, violence begets violence, violence met with violence. So uh, stylized, uh, pretty stock, uh, we'll call it destruction language, but it anticipates <clears throat> the overthrow of the Babylonian Empire, their injustice, um, and uh, the, the proud empire that they have built. It's going to come undone and it will disappear forever.
1: And you say? Yeah, I think um, seeing as how the Medo-Persian Empire did just walk right in and take over, then, uh, yeah, they were they were looted in that sense. I can agree with that. Uh, and, uh, you know, they walked in and said, Babylon, you're now a Persian colony. <laughs> and so that's pretty much what happened. Babylon fell without much of a battle. And in one night, believe it or not, and you can read about that in the book of Daniel for that account. So, uh, yeah, what Babylon had built and gained, it just became the possession of another, the possession of another people who had awaited back in the shadows in order to rise up and to take over. So in verse 8 and 17, though, Nick, Mm -hmm. it mentions uh, the destruction that came upon nations. And then it says, to the land and to the town, or some translations say the city, where violence was done. Uh, What land and town where violence was done do you think God is referring to in these two verses, 8 and 17? Verse 8 just says many
0: nations, and, I mean, it seems like the whole world is in view, that Babylon, they took over the known world at the time. All the nations that Babylon had conquered during their oppressive imperialistic campaign. Verse 17 specifies here that it's Lebanon, Uh, Lebanon is a location of Babylonian bloodshed. Uh, In fact, we get a a glimpse of the environmental injustice that was perpetrated by Babylon with Lebanon. Uh, The destruction of beasts terrified them. Lebanon known for its cedars. I'm sure Babylon took full advantage of uh, the logging industry there. Sure. uh, To the... The detriment of the uh, people of Lebanon. So, uh, so what's left? Well, that's that's the thing, right? It's it's exactly what it says in the NIV: the people who are left, so a remnant of the peoples, they will lead the charge in Babylonian judgment. So, uh, my take on it. You say?
1: So, I think the nations are definitely a part of the equation. Uh, they were captured like fish in a net in chapter right. one. So, verse. 8 and 17, though, mentions the town or the city, and I think that might be a more specific reference to Jerusalem, I mean, just taking into account who Habakkuk's audience is, um, and the land being perhaps a more general reference to Israel. Now, part of the land of Israel as a whole uh, was Lebanon. It was part of the northern uh, section of Israel. And it got me thinking, you know, Nebuchadnezzar, he didn't really conquer north Israel. That was done by Assyria, and then Babylon conquers Assyria. And so how does Lebanon fit into that equation? But it seems that uh, even the northern kingdom's destruction will come to bear upon Babylon's judgment, uh, the judgment against Babylon, that is. And seeing as how both uh, Israelite kingdoms, north and south, were ultimately undone, because of idolatry. Yes, Assyria took out the north. Yes, Babylon took out the south. But really, it was, it was Israel's own idolatry that undid them. There may be some ambiguity going on here with judgment against not just the uh, empire, but against the heavenly powers behind the empire, the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms of those wicked nations. Because it was those influences that led Israel astray, the gods of the nations, going after the gods of the other nations. And that same allusion is actually made back in Isaiah 14, which I mentioned uh, briefly before concerning the taunt song taken up against Babylon. Uh, what was uh, being judged there? Well, the king of Babylon, certainly, but I think there's also a good case that there's a double meaning, that in Isaiah 14 you also have the judging of Lucifer or the lightbearer or... Uh, or Satan, you know, and his desire to rule the north, to uh, sit on Yahweh's throne, to be the center of the cosmos. And so, you know, what is, how does he go about accomplishing that? It's, uh, to me, at least uh, one clear way is to, is to gather all the nations to himself. And it's going to have to be reversed by Yahweh in order to uh, undo the evil that's been done to again, once again, make order out of chaos, chaos caused by the forces of darkness. Any thoughts there, Nick? I know that you started off the question, verse 18 and 17. Uh, Nope. All right. We've upholstered it. Yeah. Verse 10 is an interesting statement. It says, Babylon is sinning, sinning against itself. Nick, how do you make sense out of Babylon sinning if it was indeed Yahweh who raised them up for the purpose of destruction?
0: Yeah, how has Babylon sinned? Well, let us count the ways, right? I mean, <clears throat> we've seen violence and greed, economic injustice, environmental injustice. Those are all ways that Babylon has sinned. And, and here's the thing. Just because they are a chosen instrument of Yahweh does not make them infallible or sinless. I think of Israel, yeah, Judah, they were God's chosen people, and yet they sinned. Uh, most notably through idolatry, of course. And that's how it is with Babylon here. They've been chosen, yes, but they've sinned and would therefore be punished. Uh, the New English translation has an interesting translation of the latter half of this verse. Babylon would self-destruct, which I think is illuminating. That's the nature of evil. It eventually self-destructs. Evildoers do not get to commit sin with impunity. Um, again, it's not unlike Israel. They were redeemed from Egypt. They uh, were meant to serve as the means of judgment upon the peoples of the land, all those ites uh, that that occupied the Promised Land at the time. And they do that, but they immediately run into sin in the camp with Achan in Joshua 7. And they make a treaty with the Gibeonites, even though Yahweh had told them explicitly, don't do that. And so just because you're the chosen ones, it does not...
1: That does not mean that you are sinless. Um, and you say, Alex? Yeah, I think that's a good, a good summary. You have to remember the Babylonians, uh, they weren't a bunch of Boy Scouts. Uh, nobody's righteous in this scenario in Habakkuk, not the nations, not Babylon, certainly not Jerusalem. Everyone is guilty, and everyone will be judged accordingly. And so if you want to live, then you'll have to live by faith, because uh, no nation was a safe and conducive environment for righteousness. Yahweh let the Babylonians conquer uh, but as you mentioned, the methods by which they chose to build and rule their empire; those aren't sanctioned by Yahweh. Uh, what was the list you had there? Greed, violence, uh, injustice. Yeah, no, those those aren't sanctioned. And so everything had been brought back to chaos in Babylon, and it would take a new creation to reverse the situation. And I, I'm going to argue that that did not come seventy years later in 536 when the Israelites, uh, when the Jews, got to go back to Jerusalem. I don't think that reversed the situation. That's going to take a new creation. That's going to take a first century uh, Messiah. It's going to take Jesus. And so that's important in the way that these prophetic writings get used in the New Testament. And uh, I, like, I like what you said about um, they, were, they were sanctioned to be the instrument of Yahweh's uh, justice, of his judgment just like the government in Romans 13 is sanctioned to be the instrument of uh, judgment against evildoers but that doesn't mean everybody who occupies a position within that instrument, within that form of government, is doing the right thing and so that's that's a good parallel as well uh, just like the church the church is the instrument that's been authorized sanctioned by Yahweh to spread the gospel but it doesn't mean that people aren't going to be in that institution who are always going to do the right thing in fact there are going to be many wolves sneaking in in sheep's clothing causing lots of destruction well Nick um, interesting verse in verse 14 it Mm -hmm. says that uh, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of Yahweh as the waters cover the seas so let let me explore this for a second Nick how do you think the earth will be filled with glory first thing I want to point out is Habakkuk reads his Bible all right this is a
0: verbatim quote from Isaiah 119 and so oh diligent listener read your Bible all right um, second thing is with so how, how will the earth be filled with the glory well with the coming destruction and the end of Babylon yahweh will be glorified knowledge here is more than just information it's uh, experiential knowledge the world will come to experience the glory of God when he brings Babylon to an end it's similar to that mid section in Ezekiel where the downfall of various nations will mean that they will know I am Yahweh Ezekiel chapters 25 through 29 highlights that so
1: I think it's the end of of Babylon Uh, what do you think So I'm going to diverge here. Uh, I don't think the world came to a knowledge of Yahweh when Medo-Persia usurped the Babylonians' empire. I don't think that happened, even by a long shot, really. Uh, This verse seems to be messianic, and the parallel from Isaiah 11.9 that you mentioned, that kind of tips us off to that idea, because the next verse, Isaiah 11.10, says that the root of Jesse will rule the nations, and the nations will will put their hope in him. And so Isaiah sort of gives you the, the extra bit that you need for how does Yahweh's glory fill the earth? He says, well, it'll be through the root of Jesse when he rules the nations, and they're going to put their hope in him. Now, Paul takes that verse in Romans fifteen twelve and he, he points that towards Jesus, and so that's sort of a gimme for the New Testament Christian. But again, I think this also contributes to the ambiguity found in Habakkuk, uh, the idea that um, a heavenly judgment must also take place against Babylon, not just an earthly judgment. And the judgment of those heavenly powers of darkness uh, will not happen until, uh, from my view, until the cross. Because that's when, you know, Colossians says Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities. And I think that's why he launches his kingdom campaign to take back all the nations through the Great Commission, to make disciples. Uh, That's why he prefaces it in Matthew 28, uh, uh, 18 through 20, where he says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So he took that back from the rulers and authorities so that he can take back the nations. And so uh, will the earth be filled with glory of the knowledge of Yahweh through Babylon's destruction? I'm going to say yes, if you're talking about heavenly Babylon in the spiritual realms, and, but no, if you're talking about earthly Babylon, that just sort of morphed into Medo-Persia. Any thoughts there, Nick? Uh, nope. Two good takes. All right. And verses 15 through 16, we have uh, some uh, R-rated verses here going on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, woe, cursing be to Babylon that make their neighbor drink, mix in their venom to make them drunk, to look at their nakedness. Yeah. Um, what do you think is meant there in those verses what, by drinking and nakedness being exposed? How do you take that, Nick?
0: Yeah, parents, here's the NC-17 part of the Bible. Right. Uh, you probably didn't cover in Bible class very much. Um, I mean, Babylon is pictured here as a voyeur. They are getting their neighbor uh, liquored up just so he could then violate her. Um, Babylon roofies the nations. That's <laughs> That's that's essentially what he's saying here. And and yet it's a it's a turnaround. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself. Show your uncircumcision. There's gonna be the table's gonna be turned on Babylon and perhaps quite literally, Babylon, their drinking parties, they're recorded for us in Daniel five. And then of course that very night is when the, the king there's the the um relatively in hostile takeover. I don't know. Anyway. Um uh with uh, the the overtaking of the of the throne, so you know we've we've talked previously about the cup of wrath. That's that makes an appearance here um, in the middle of verse sixteen. The cup of the Lord's uh, the cup in the Lord's right hand and in Yahweh's right hand, and the right hand symbolizing strength. But here it is again the the cup of divine wrath, and Babylon is going to drink, get drunk, stagger around, and will be prime for
1: destruction. Um, Alex, you think? So I. Uh... I agree with that. I think there's something else going on here. Uh, I believe there's an allusion being made to the Garden of Eden. So, um, you know, I mentioned Isaiah 14, which we saw had a connection to verses 6 and 7. And in Isaiah 14, there's a a double reference there to the king of Babylon, but also to Satan or Lucifer. And uh, do you remember what happened when the serpent gave his, uh, I'm going to call it his venom Of lies to Eve, venom comes from snakes. Um, She and Adam ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and they realized they were naked. And so Babylon resembles the serpent of old here in this verse, working to raise his own glory through the shaming of mankind, shaming of the people. And so instead, though, what will happen? Well, he will be cast down just like he was cast down before it is interesting in the in the hebrew the word for nakedness here is maor and it is only used one time in the in the old testament and here it is habakkuk 2 15 and it's just defined as genitalia you know, it's a very graphic verse right and in the next verse where it says babylon's naked will be exposed you know this reversing it's a different hebrew word it's the word uh he'arel, and it means to uncover one's foreskin or uncircumcision and so there may be something going on there in that distinction between those two different words for nakedness and perhaps the ultimate idea of a separation that will take place in God's scheme of redemption those who have been um, saved, who have been cleansed, who have been circumcised um, who have been taken out of shame and then those who have not and will be made ashamed uh any thoughts there nick uh I, I noticed that there's a
0: difference in the septuagint reading that's didn't even mention anything about
1: the uncircumcision. that's interesting but yeah that's right let's see we'll see verse uh 15 and 16 in septuagint the, oh, the one who gives drink to his neighbor with a turbid upset and intoxicates him in order that he might look upon their caves—that's weird. Caves. <laughs> hmm. uh, something uh, got lost in translation there because uh, I don't. Caves doesn't make sense. Um, and that happens sometimes. Drink you also an excess of dishonor from glory, shake in the heart and stagger. A cup of the right hand of the Lord has encircled you. Dishonor has been gathered against your glory. Yeah, that's right. So I, th- I think probably in the Septuagint, that word for caves was uh, some sort of mistranslation when the uh, writer was translating from Hebrew into Greek. That'd be my guess. But uh,
0: well, even even in the commentary from the Dead Sea Scrolls on Habakkuk, the, the text itself doesn't say anything about it. But then in the commentary, they talk about <laughs> not circumcising the foreskin of
1: your heart. So oh, really? That's weird. In the commentary? Yeah. Interesting. So live on the air research. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's a, uh, well, and then when we look at the Dead Sea Scrolls, they had access and they had copies of like multiple manuscripts and they didn't all say the same thing. So they were making some of their own copies, but they also had uh, copies of other things. They had Aramaic and Hebrew and Greek. And, uh and so, yeah, they were, they were trying to piece it all together. It seems like, and, man when you read some of those Dead Sea Scroll commentaries like they were all about like applying it to like what was happening in their day especially during in Tychus Epiphanes and uh and what he did to the temple and how sacrifice came to an end and then it was restored through the Maccabean revolt and so like when you read Dead Sea Scroll commentary they're very much interpreting it as unfolding in their day uh much like the uh you know futurist interpretations of revelation how revelation is always something happening in our day (laughs) but i digress um (laughs) verse 19 we got two more verses here to uh wrap up nick um verse 19 it says woe to him who says to a piece of wood awake tell a mute stone arise and that's your teacher why do you think someone would tell an idol to awake or arise what are your thoughts nick I think that's the
0: the whole point of this closing section is uh, to, to demonstrate the negative response to the rhetorical question beginning in verse 18, what prophet is an idol? well I mean all you get is lies right they're a teacher of lies verse 18 says and so and then the follow-up rhetorical question there in verse 19, can this teach it anticipates a negative answer or at best um, an echo from the previous verse. It just teaches lies. So, I mean, that's an absurd picture here. That's being uh, painted intentionally trying to rouse a lifeless idol. Um,
1: uh, it's, there's no profit in them. Yeah. And you say, you know, there's this part at the end of verse 19 where it says, and there is no breath at all inside of it. Um, that made me wonder, because there is a, something in the ancient Near East called the opening of the mouth ceremony. Um, And it's where an idol would be made and then, through ritual, be given life from the deity uh, that it was an image of. Uh, It's called opening of the mouth probably because, like, when when a baby's born, you know, the doctor puts his finger in the baby's mouth and clears out the mucus, and then the baby breathes, (gasps) takes his first breath. Um, And so that was the ceremony they did for their their idols. Now, the idol worshippers of the ancient Near East, they knew that it was stone and wood and gold, uh, etc., and that it was, it was not the deity itself. It was just like, uh, something in which the power or presence of the deity, of the gods, would be made known or manifested to them through their ritual idolatry. And so I, I think the point of the passage, and many other prophetic writings that communicate the same way, is that Yahweh does not interact with his people in that kind of way. He is a living God who actually does appear to the patriarchs and the prophets who actually led them out of Egypt and actually dwelt on Sinai in the glory cloud and then the glory cloud in the temple. So the images of Yahweh, they're not stone, they're not wood, they're not gold. They're Adam and Eve. They're his people. It, they're us. And so uh, to look to uh, something else as a means to communicate with God or to image god is uh, it's foolish it, it's lies and that's what um that's what happened they exchanged the truth for a lie romans 1 1 and 2 back to romans 1 and 2 again <laughs> so that's uh, just a little just a little bit of a backdrop you know people of the ancient near east they uh didn't know how to make cars and airplanes but they weren't stupid <laughs> they and they knew they knew that these were stone and wood but there was something about the way in which they interacted with their gods that uh made what they did um, real. And so verse 20 then, contrast, uh, Yahweh is in his temple. That's where he dwells. Now, Nick, how is Yahweh going to be in his holy temple if Jerusalem is going to be destroyed?
0: Well, while the, the physical temple was on earth and was destroyed... Yahweh says in Isaiah 66.1, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. So, though the earthly temple is burnt to the ground, and it would be just decades future from Habakkuk, Yahweh's still in his holy, heavenly temple. And so that's how he's in his temple. He's in his holy, heavenly temple. Uh, and you say?
1: Yeah, I think that's right. Everything on the earthly temple was a shadow or a copy of the real and glorious counterpart in heaven. And that's important to remember. Whatever we saw in the earthly temple, whatever it was, the utensils, uh, everything, there was an actual, real, corresponding element in heaven. The earthly temple was the shadow, the symbol, the copy, the miniature toy version. The real version has not been taken over by any god other than Yahweh no Marduk is is not the winner in this battle Babylon may win on earth but Satan has not won in heaven and I think that's part of the thrust here the temple may be destroyed on earth but the heavenly one remains under the reign and rule of Yahweh and thus we pray your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven final thoughts Nick You know, one
0: question that I think Habakkuk addresses is, what do you do when you don't know what to do, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, he's, I don't know what to do here, you know, Babylon's coming, they're going to destroy us, so God, what, what do you want me to do? And one of the things that he does is he laments, he complains, he calls on God, he says, how can this be? He questions. And so we've talked about that, I think in the previous episode that that's that's okay to do that's that's a God's a big god he can handle that, and so um Habakkuk, I think is instructive in that way right that uh, you can and should turn to God to yahweh and um even though it looks bleak and even though you gotta wait for vindication um God it will surely happen it will surely come right that's that that is what's impressed here
1: um so th- those are my concluding thoughts anything from you alex well and just think how long they had to wait for the messiah right a yep. long time and they had they had hints and clues and breadcrumb trails left here and there but yeah messiah took a long time to show up <laughs> from from the time of isaiah from the time of habakkuk hundreds of years and even now today, you know we talk about uh, having to wait for Jesus to to return. you know what do we what do we do until then? And uh, I think it's important just to remember what you do know to do, right? there There are lots of things where you don't know what to do, but there's still the things that you still know what to do. you know you still know how to pray. you still know how to uh, explain the truth, what you believe is true. you still know the gospel. none of that changes. But the scenario you're thrown into, yeah, you just don't know what will happen. Uh, that, those are the moments where the righteous live by faith, where you have to just hang on. You just have to hang in there. And lucky for us, we don't have to always do that by ourselves. Uh, if we're especially lucky, we'll be with a community of strong Christians. We'll be in, knit together with our f- church family And they'll be there to stand with us and to help us in those moments where we don't know what to do, where they can just be there with us. And I think that's important as well. Hmm.
0: I think that's going to bring us to the one-minute sermons. All right, one-minute sermons. Whose turn is it? Uh, You're going to go first. Again, this is just an exercise that Alex and I do because we're preachers. We love preachers. Sunday's coming. We want to give you a good head start on a couple good sermons. And the way it works, I've selected a song title. Alex has selected a song title. Neither one of us knows what the other has picked. And uh, we're going to have one minute, 60 seconds on the clock. And uh, we're going to come up off the top of our heads with a one-minute sermon, uh, text, and at least a good start of one. So you go first.
1: So I the song that I okay you pick
0: okay yeah go ahead yeah I I give it to you and so um, the artist is Sting (laughs) and the song that I have selected is not Roxanne like the first one you (laughs) gave me (laughs) this is actually his song if I ever lose my faith in you Um, if I ever lose my faith in you Um, was it popular. I I think at the time, so here's here's the the opening line. You ready? You can say, I lost my faith in science and progress. You can say, I lost my belief in the Holy Church, right? So, and that's kind of how the song goes. But then he turns around and says, if I ever lose my faith in you. One minute on the clock, Alex. Ready
1: and go. If I ever lose my faith in you. You know there is a important verse in Second Peter where it says, or First Peter, First Peter, where it says that uh, we should stand firm, knowing that our suffering is uh, similar to that which is being experienced by our brothers all around the world, and that's Second uh, Peter five. And verse 9, there it is, 2 Peter 5, 9. But resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished in your brethren who are in the world. I think it's one of the things we can fall uh, prey to in temptations. think that our suffering is unique, that no one understands, no one will ever go through what I'm going through. And maybe on a very minute, specific experience, that could be true. But in the overall experience, we're all suffering. We're all waiting for Jesus to come back. We're all awaiting the hope and the glory of the resurrection. And so no matter what happens, even if… Time. You have to not give up. This is my timer up. Do not give up faith in the one true God, in Jesus the Savior. That's it. Nice. All right. (laughs) That was a fast minute. (laughs) Uh, Okay. Nick, are you ready for yours? Ready as I'll ever be. Good news, Nick. This song is uh, number one on the worldwide uh, top charts. And it has been for a little while now. So you've probably heard it. It's by Tones and I, an Australian artist. Never heard of and it. And the uh, <laughs> the band is Tones and I, and the song is mm-hmm. called Dance Monkey. Dance Monkey. So the <laughs> the chorus goes, dance for me, dance for me, dance for me. Oh, oh. I've never seen anybody do the things you do before. They say, move for me, move for me, move for me. eh, hey, hey, eh. Hey. <laughs> And when you're done, make you do it all again. Tones and I, Dance Monkey, uh, one-minute sermon, and uh, go.
0: I suppose. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, Luke 15. It's got to be there for me. Um, The prodigal son, he goes away to the far country with – a third, because that's the way they split up the inheritance, of his father's wealth, squanders it, ends up feeding pigs, chewing a pigsty That's a terrible thing. Comes back, though, comes to a census, comes home, and his father welcomes him. They kill the fatted calf, throws robes, rings, shoes, all that stuff back on him. The older son is out in the field, and he hears music and dancing. The father has become a dance monkey <laughs> for his son who's come home. <laughs> and uh, he's thrown this party for the sinner who's come home. How do we respond when sinners come back to the Father's house? And I think we ought to be dance monkeys for when <laughs> when sinners come back home <laughs> to the Father's house, lest we be like the older brother out in the field.
1: Yeah. <laughs> oh. You can have an extra minute if you want to keep going. I'm cool it's with that. all right. I see many times I like can fit dance monkey in there.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, all right. Well, that's going to do that's it. That's great.
1: episode of Swordplay. You win. I can't do any more one-minute sermons. You just win. You win them all. <laughs> You're the winner. I bow. I bow to the king of preachers over here. <laughs> oh okay
0: (laughs) thanks for tuning in
1: yeah we'll see you see you next time on another episode of uh sword